Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome to Talking Direction, the behind the scenes podcast going deep into the world of theater, film, television, and online content to celebrate directors. Those visionary artists at the center of plays, musicals, movies, and TV shows enjoyed around the world. Each week, we welcome acclaimed guests to explore imagination, risk-taking, and craft, as well as looking at the past, present, and future of the creative industries. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. We're available on all platforms or by visiting dramaleague.org. Thanks for listening and for talking direction. Hi, I'm Danny Sharon. I've been a theater director for 15 years. Something that I constantly find myself wrestling with is my relationship to money. It's something that I've had to spend a lot of time and energy navigating. This was especially true in the beginning stages of my career. But as I've gotten older, I found that this relationship hasn't really gone away. It's just evolved. But there's one underlying issue that has been true for me since the start. So few people have ever spoken frankly to me about the financial hardships of pursuing a career in the theater, even less through the lens of a director. In March of last year, when the pandemic forced the doors of theaters across the world to close, and I, along with many others, lost my job, I couldn't help but spend a great deal of time thinking about the complicated relationship that all of us in the theater community have with money. And for the sake of the future of this field, how important it would be to try to find a way to make financial conversations more transparent and less taboo moving forward. This has been a time of immense difficulty and uncertainty, but I thought that if people were willing to be open about their struggles, we might just have a chance to level the playing field and find a more inclusive and equitable way forward. So with a deep understanding of how difficult it might be to actually have honest conversations about this pesky little devil called money, I decided to pick up the phone and call some of my friends and colleagues in the industry to see if I could get some answers. This final episode is a continuation of these conversations. Let's return to my conversation with Colette Robert. Do you think that looking in, into the future in the next five, 10 years, do you think that it's possible to have the like financial life that you want, that you see for yourself, given what you've been making as a director? I think I would have to figure out something else as I sort of, I mean, I'm not near retirement, but this thinking into the future um, that I would need to figure something else out um, in order to have sort of a little more stability um, as an, as an older adult. Um, and, and I also think the pandemic has really changed how I think, um, just because to have your entire industry shut down, I was like, oh, thank God I have this teaching that I can sort of rely on. And I have like a little bit of income coming in because otherwise I would have zero. So I, I don't know if I would ever feel after this year, I don't know if I would ever feel comfortable just relying on one thing. Lee said this. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, it's also the thing where if you also feel like, oh, I'll never get a job. No one will ever hire me. And even if I do get hired, I won't make any money. um, And you still decide to stay in it. You know, that's a particular brand of insanity, right? Um, And 
you're going to do everything you can to figure out um, how to stay in that game. Um, and I think then when you pile up against all of that, um, whatever other um, um, obstacles there are, um, and, uh, you know, I would say um, for me, there were the, the obstacles were, were very related to um, being a woman, being a young woman. I mean, I think being a young director is very difficult. It's more difficult to be a woman. It's exponentially more difficult to be a non-white woman. And, you know, those, when you start piling up those obstacles, additionally, on top of all the other things you and I are describing, um, you know, I think every person who uh, is, you know, is doing it um, is kind of their own miracle in a certain way, um, because really, it's a triumph of, you know, I don't know, like, uh, uh, like willfulness over reality in some way. And, um, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I, um, you know, when I think back on, on, um, kind of where, when I was coming up, so I, um, directed Lisa Crohn's play well in 2006 and in 2006, I was only the seventh woman to ever direct a, a straight play on Broadway. And that's right. And, you know, seven. So I was the seventh in 2006. And I was 30 years old. And it was a play with a lesbian as the lead, directed by a lesbian. And, like, I think about that now. And I'm like... That is wild, like wild that that was the the case that like, not, you know, and I think like, okay, many things have changed and, you know, there's, there were, I don't know, you know, last year there were seven women on Broadway, you know, whatever, like the, the numbers have changed, but, and so some things are different and some things um, are not different, you know, also in 2010, there was one black director. And in 2020, there was one black director. Um, you know, I directed Bess Wall's play this year. She was the only woman playwright on Broadway, American woman playwright on Broadway. Like, you know, so there are things that are, um, that have changed. And yet there are still those staggering, staggering numbers. Um, and it is one of the things that I, you know, think about a lot on the other side of this pandemic. And one of the things that I think is, um, uh, is, is exciting about the accountability that's happening, which is that, um, I, I'm done with firsts. Like it will be really great when there are no more firsts and it will be really great when it feels like, um, there is a desire to change the story on those numbers, a real desire, not a fantasy about those, that desire, which I think people have embraced a fantasy about theater being an equitable place for a long time. And part of this reckoning is that many people who haven't had that privilege are like, what? It's not, it's not an equitable place. Like their idea that theater is progressive is, you know, that bubble has been burst and it's burst because those numbers are clear. Um, and for many people, um, for women and specifically for women of color and people of color in general, they've known those numbers all along. That's part of their reality. But the people who have been in charge of the system, it's, it's been a real 
fantasy for them that they actually live inside of a progressive place. Jill Soloway has this incredible quote about how men are hired for their potential and women are hired for their experience. And I think that that's, you know, really, you, I really felt that certainly coming up is that my male colleagues um, did a well-received small show somewhere. And then the next year they did something on Broadway or two things on Broadway or three things on Broadway. Whereas the women that I came up with, you know, we all did kind of one thing um, that was successful. And then it was like, we could do another at the same level. Like no one was looking to then be like, oh, they did that really incredible thing. And now they get a Broadway show. So that, that transference happens for men. Um, the potential idea, um, I think happens with men and specifically, um, for white men. And I, I, I also will say that I think that, um, this idea of sustainability, um, I, I sometimes say this to my students, but there's, there's emotional sustainability and financial sustainability. There's luck. And then there's your craft. And those three things have to happen simultaneously. And those tracks are very far apart at the beginning of your career or at the beginning. There's like what you do for work and how you make money is different from your craft, which is different from your emotional sustainability and your financial sustainability. Like those are three tracks running like in very wide with a lot of distance between them. And then as you get older and you're working and you stay in it, you're able to create like in that moment that some amazing piece of luck happens where like you get to do the thing you've been practicing your craft um, at night or, you know, on the weekends when you're doing your day job, but you've been practicing so that you're ready to go. So when that thing happens and then you're able to be like, okay, great. And whatever, but that moment of lightning hitting and those three tracks coming together can only happen if you're still in it and you're still there. And I think that the ability for people to stay in it and still be there goes back to who graduates college with debt, who goes to college, what kind of communities are there for people. And that's all deeply, deeply related to the questions around race and privilege. As a new arts leader, I asked Sahim Ali if he thought nonprofit institutions should or could play a role in supporting emerging artists financially. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that those frank conversations about the just inequities that are inherent already kind of that fall on racial lines in this country because of just historical and structural racism, um, just the, the acknowledgement of that at first and then just like the deep, deep investigative um, consideration of how that actually follows through to who has the opportunities and who doesn't, who has the luxury of being able to, you know, not only it's like, if you're not getting paid, that's one, it's like one level to get paid. It's another level to do it for free. And then a whole other level to have to pay for it. You know, like there's, those are three very different strata of, um, of assumptions. And so I think, First of all, recognizing that, and I think there has been a movement, right, to like uh, abolish unpaid internships because that that on the people who can afford to do those are the ones who are going to do it, and the ones who can't, who need that opportunity, can't. So I think 
we have to invest in um, human resources. Like we, we raise money for buildings. We raise money for expansions. Like we need to also raise money to be able to put, mo- the, the, to put finances in people's pockets to allow them to engage in to engage in activities and to be exposed at a certain level in a way that they wouldn't be able to if we were asking them to work for free or to pay for it. So I think it's about, because all, all of our institutions have to fundraise, all of our institutions, like that that's how the not-for-profit theater survives, right? Like it's donations, it's grants, um, and sometimes those uh, particular uh, funds can be earmarked for certain expansion or certain growth. You know, I remember this period um, in like maybe like 10 years ago where all of a sudden all these theaters were opening second spaces, you know, second stage opened a second space and Atlantic opened a second space, a roundabout opened a, a third space. It was like, but but like, you know, salaries to artists stayed flat. So if our institutions are able to raise money in order to expand physically, why can't we also raise money to be able to support and pay artists more for the work that they're doing or be able to allow artists who can't afford to engage in the work, um, not to have to worry about their paycheck because that's actually factored in. So I think it's about a reorienting of um, priorities in terms of like where money that's being raised goes, because I just, I mean, I feel like our institutions are raising as much money as they can, right? There are a finite number of people, there are a finite number of organizations that can provide money, but like what's being done with that money? How is it being allocated? I think, there just needs to be a, a, a consideration and a conversation about how to reallocate because we're, no institution is going to raise more money than they need. You know, every institution is going to is going to fall short of a certain goal. It's going to fall short of, of a target. Um, yeah. So to me, it's about reorienting um, um, where the resources are going. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so good luck with that, Seem. <laughs> um, there something that occurred to me while you were talking that I just I, I'm going to attempt to articulate, but bear with me if it if it takes me a second. Um, I I there's a concern that I realize that I've been having in these as I've been having these conversations about equity in theater, um, and in in how to um, how to raise raise people up to the level instead of expecting them to like meet a certain level. Um, there is a, a a complicated sort of nuance to this, which is that there's like a fine line between like um, helping to support artists of color because they need help. And then um, uh, uh, artists of color um, being portrayed as, or seen as being needy or needing help. Um, Does that make sense? Like it's this, it's this fine line of like, do you, and, and every time I have a conversation about like, okay, but you know, like we need to like, for example, um, I my job before everything shut down was on uh, as the associate director on Dear Evan Hansen, and we would there were some young actors of color who we cast as some of the kids in the show who did not have the training that some of the white actors had. Like they just didn't get to go to the University of Michigan or Juilliard or wherever they went, and they and we there was a system in the show that did not support those those actors. It sort of said you you were cast and now you have to meet us at the level that everybody else is at. And so in fighting for a, a rethinking of this, what I also find is that I have moments feeling like um, I am now portraying artists of color as being less than or needy. 
and I, and I, or in need of assistance. Do you know what I mean? And I, that also is giving me like a weird taste in my mouth. And it's just an experience I'm having, like moving through these, these post, <laughs> these like post George Floyd times that I, I, and I just wanted to like throw that out there and see if you have any thoughts or comments about that, because I'm like, it's something that I'm struggling with at the moment. And I hope that it made sense. Did what I say make sense? It- no, it does. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think the thing that we can always fall back on is the fact that it is it is it is a fact that communities that have been marginalized, that have not been able to accumulate wealth in the same way that white communities and white families have been able to. That is a fact that the, the ramifications of slavery have actually persisted all the way through the present day. That's what we call systemic racism. That's what we call white supremacy. And so I think that like arming arming ourselves with that knowledge then allows us to talk about the 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 progeny of the people who were undergoing who went through that subjugation as being just marginalized in a really specific way and that having financial ramifications and so like the 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 um um the, the statistics are the statistics and the facts are there like when you talk about like where the income lies, um, who who are the wealthy members of our of our communities, um, where are their um, inadequacies and where are their inefficiencies, and so I think that um, there is language and there is fact to substantiate the reorienting of priorities and the the favoring even of um, certain communities and certain identities over others because the proof is in the pudding. So. Um, yeah, so I, 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 and I know what you're saying in terms of like um, presenting um, people as being like needier or um, 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 just, just like the, 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 the danger of that kind of vocabulary. But I think it's just about it, it's arming ourselves with what the facts are in our country, which no one can dispute with. No one in their right mind would dispute with that unless you are a right wing um, zealot, um, um, you know, would be able to dispute that that's actually fact. Jacob had this to say. That's right. And, and I think, you know, and what's unfortunate is that uh, I, I think people were raising the flag around this and I'm not sure that folks listened. You know, I think that there has been, there have been, you know, folks who have been holding it down, trying to create a more just and inclusive American theater who have been trying to shine a light on this inequity and I think it took a global pandemic. It took um, it, it took seeing our our black community uh, suffer in such public ways. It took uh, the testimonials of people sharing their abuse and their suffering. Right. It, it 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 took so much, and it's sad to think that all those things had to happen for us to then say enough is enough. And so when I think about the work that I'm doing, I feel like I join a, a, a growing movement, you know, a, a movement that has been in place well before I even became an artistic director. I, I truly stand on the shoulders of my ancestors and all those activists and organizers and people who have been shouting to say, this is a house, again, this is a house that cannot, can no longer stand. And, and I just think that, you know, we have to question and we have to illuminate and bring to light the fact that this is um, that you know to your point, Danny, that we have probably lost some really gifted folks 
because we because we we because we didn't question the system and we allowed the system to 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 survive or to persevere you know where uh, you know internship programs where they were unpaid and so the people who could do those were largely white folks um, or to go back to the example we were just talking about you had directors who uh, had other means of income so they could take that contract where they were on the second stage and only being paid maybe $300 a week so I think that this is a reckoning that is overdue, and I think that we will not go back. I feel like that's a pledge that I've made to my community, and I am hoping that others will join in in that. And the other thing that I want to say, too, is that for those who are listening, you do not have to be an artistic director to affect change. And I want to lift up Stephanie Ibarra. Uh, she talks so passionately and so beautifully that no matter where you sit, there are levers that you can push and pull to affect change. I think sometimes we think, oh, well, I'm not the executive director, or I'm not the producer, or I'm not the chair of the board, or I'm not that the, the artist being produced on Broadway. What can I do? How No one's going to listen to me. But man, we have to trust in the power of our voice we have to trust in the power of coalition building. We have to trust that when you have a courageous conversation with just one person, it can have ripples that you're not always going to be able to see right away. So to know that in this moment of reckoning, in this moment of trying to actually reshape the form that, the, the, the form that we love, which is theater, we have to do it together. We thought this. That's how I feel about the theater industry, which is that it's flawed and fucked up and problematic and needs a real burn down and rebuild and questioning and all of it. But I, I want to be with everybody in the ashes, I guess. Let's circle back to my conversation with David Cromer. I mean, I'm having the same experience now yeah. because it it feels really like tenuous and scary to me. And it I um, uh, I think for someone like me who is not established in the way that you are, the reality of how like backed up the pipeline of of projects is now at all of these theaters and how it just everything is so delayed that like anything that I was working on or or am working on and developing, I my fear is that. It, they, those projects will not get programmed for five years or something long like that because yeah. you know and maybe this this could also just be my own like anxiety but my what I've been thinking to myself is like when theater comes back who who will be the people getting the jobs it's going to be people like you it's going to be people like Lee Silverman or whoever it is who will get those who who will start working first and so because I'm in this weird, like I'm 34. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel a little neither here nor there. Um, it, the reality of like being able to be a freelance theater director feels um, unrealistic at this moment, at least for a number of years moving forward. I'm hoping it's like the closing credits of WALL-E, you know, where we all like get off our asses and like have to build a new world. <laughs> you know, maybe it's going to be something like that, you know? Um, I can't help thinking that 
a term a term that I use when you know there was a, you know, the in early days of the of the shutdown uh, all the theaters I was scheduled to do shows with and I was all having meetings going like well you know soon we got to be ready we got to be ready to you know make make those offers and you know I'll do pre-production and stuff like that and that started to kind of disappear and stuff like that but I'm sort of wondering like a term we started throwing around was you know and then you know they started having conversations like well can we do this to make this a little smaller do this a little less do this you know like starting to think about that and I just started thinking about creative austerity you know and and so we might not be able to ride around on the hover carts with the big gulps you know but you know maybe it's maybe you know maybe it'll be more like storefront theater maybe it'll be more like you know all those offices in midtown you know no one's going to go back to working in an office if they don't have to so all that real estate in midtown you know what i mean so maybe we're going to start making like storefronts in midtown you know and doing like theater like that you know like it might be something that isn't so much about living but like they'll never they'll never stop being there might not be the money to go but they'll never stop being sort of group we just haven't invent we some we just haven't invented the 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 we just haven't invented the safeguards yet but it might be something a little scrappier and that might be good it might be fun to rebuild civilization. This is the thing. And this is like the whole reason why I wanted to have this conversation is that I feel like as I was listening to you dream and I was dreaming along with you, I just had this like devil or this like gnawing feeling in my head being like, okay, but then how, how are you going to afford to do that? How, what job will you have to do during the day to be able to do that theater right. and that storefront? Um, which is, a uh, you know, and I hate that that has to be like the thing that, <laughs> the, like the thing yeah. that comes into my head and prevents me from dreaming, you know? Well, but okay. But if we don't do that theater, we have the same question, which is what job are we going to have to have in order to live in our apartment or in order to have something to eat tonight? So we might as well just go to rehearsal tonight. If we're just going to be shivering in a, an apartment we're squatting in anyway we might as well and that's what it was that's what it all used to be and i don't want to be romantic about being poor and underappreciated look uh, paying and valuing artists is important but i also push back and say artist is a job you gave yourself i gave myself so i do have to in a capitalist society earn my place I have to earn the I have to earn the artistic rent in order to live in you know one's the audience's aesthetic brain you know apartment and 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 uh, so so you know so so we're gonna have to do that we're gonna have to do that anyway so we might as well create during it you know um, I don't know I mean it's 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 interesting that there isn't I was teaching some Zoom classes, teaching, I'm sorry, I should not say that. I was, in spring, I was joining in on a bunch of theater professor friends of mine, Zoom classes, because I, I figured they were having trouble filling hours. So I said, well, you want me to come talk to your directing class? And a bunch of people did. So I did a bunch of those. The beginning of the semester, nobody knew what to do. By June, they were trying things. 
They were learning about Zoom scene work. They were, no, I don't want to do Zoom readings. I don't want to do Zoom theater. I don't want to do Zoom theater, but you know what? Somebody's going to come up with some kind of fucking awesome way to do something. And then we're all going to be copying that. You know what I mean? And so that's exciting too. It <laughs> might be, it might be towards a poor theater again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's not going to, you know, one thing I knew as a young person in Chicago was money doesn't make the art any better. And often it makes it worse because you, because we are all generally lazy or cheap. You can be lazy or you can be cheap. You can't be both. You know what I mean? Uh, at the same right. time. Uh, yeah. Lee had this to say. What are those? What are those stretches for directors? You know, what is the thing? I mean, it is one of the most difficult things about being a director is that you don't have a deliverable. You need all kinds of other people. You can't just sit in your room and like practice your instrument. You can't work out, um, you know, to stay limber. Like you need people to keep your uh, developing your craft. So, what are the ways that young directors right now can be given? opportunities and help to keep practicing their craft so that this time is not um, emotional, financial, spiritual, um, professional um, apathy and where you just get flabby in all the places, you know, but that in, instead you're able to stay nimble and flexible. Um, I've really just dove this metaphor into the ground, but you know what I'm saying? Like we just, we, I, I think artists need all of that. And, um, and, and I think they need, they, people want to feel like other people believe in them. And that is fundamentally, I think, the thing that keeps us all going are the relationships that we have and the people who say, you are an interesting artist. What do you have going on? And those conversations go so far. Do you think that we, we as people who have been doing it for a while, can, can we prepare those people to better do you have a better outlook on the financial reality of being an artist? Or do you think that the, the way that you were, you were sort of brought up, which is not dissimilar from the way I was professionally, yeah, yeah. is just the way that it is. David said this. Well, wow. Okay. That's a, a great question. B, uh, uh, I'm going to not answer it. Well, see, uh, I don't know. Boy, I wish I knew. Uh, I don't know, and I'd really like to think about that. Uh, I, it's possible that there isn't. It's possible that there isn't. This might be, this has been what artists have had to do. You've had to, you've had to, we've had to um, peddle our importance in something that everybody loves and uses, but they won't admit that they need it or that it's valuable you know uh so that seems hard maybe not and maybe that's okay you know you 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 you're free, you know you're you're free, you can you can mooch off friends you, you you know if you have two potatoes share your potatoes you know what i mean <laughs> 
you know what I mean? Like get through it together as an ensemble of artists. You find your people, you see what you can bear. No, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think, uh, I think, uh, I, I don't think so. And maybe there shouldn't be. Yeah. I think that that's fair. I mean, it feels right to me and it feels like, I do think that it's interesting that the, there is a difference though in New York and Chicago. I felt having moved here right after college that there was the allure of the possibility of being able to make a living here in oh, theater, absolutely. Oh, which, yeah. I, which I don't think, I mean, it, it, I have never lived in Chicago, but it doesn't seem like there was any sort of like illusion that you could at least not for a while, actually make a living doing theater. That's so. true. So as you, you know, like the, the drama league obviously is, is, has a really strong relationship with emerging directors. And then as a result, with many, you know, working and established directors because of those early connections that you build. As you are dealing every year with, an, with a new batch of these young and hopeful directors, what do you... What do you tell them about this kind of stuff? What do you feel like your responsibility is? What are you afraid of telling them? What do you avoid telling them? Gabriel had this to say. You know, more and more, I feel like our work is to counter some of the things they were fed by their training programs with with a more clear-eyed and um, current set of facts and, and um, an evocation of the landscape of the field. You know, they um, mm -hmm. have been told, you know, some programs are doing wonderful work in in helping people understand the industry. But I would say the majority of programs are working off of dated information, certainly as we come out of the pandemic and look at the new economic realities that are going to face theater artists in 2021 and beyond. You know, a lot of their information will simply be out of date. Um, and so. I feel like more and more we're helping artists uncover the realities of now, you know, um, and, and trying to set them up to make choices, you know, um, about those realities. I, I think we're very lucky at the drama league that we are a competitively chosen program. So, you know, out of, you know, 600 directors who applied to us last year, we're going to work with about 15 of them. You know, so these are extraordinary artists already. You know, I don't have to help them learn how to direct. Um, so I have the luxury of being able to say, oh, let's talk to this financial services sector. Let's talk to these producers. Let's talk about how we put shows together. Let's talk about anti-racist practice. Let's talk about um, intimacy direction. Let's talk about the things that are really going to affect your ability to work profitably in this field. Um, so on some level, you know, because of the high artistic quality of the directors, you know, they're very young, um, but you already know they have tremendous potential. So now it's really about figuring out how to set them up for success in a field that is very hard to navigate. Mm -hmm. And do you, you know, I as these directors then leave, 
leave the like comfort of the program, <laughs> leave the like financial comfort of the program and leave the like emotional support of the program. And, and you've seen now that, ba- you know, batches and batches of these directors go out into the real world. Like, what have you, what have you, um, uh, what do you feel like you, do you feel like you have a responsibility to, con- to continue supporting and having some connection with them? And what is that even when they're like outside of the bounds of like the fellowship itself? What does that make sense? This question, sort of. Yeah, yeah, it does, and and I think it's the major thing that we've been working on internally, and the and the major transformation we're going to have in this moment. Um, <clears throat> we've been working. Uh, I don't know. If it, I I became the artistic director in 2015, and pretty soon after, we engaged in sort of a audit of our programs through some strategic practices, and I think what we're learning in this moment to take a very big conversation uh, down to. Um, a very concise answer to your question um, is that we are seeing that artists need to be supported for longer periods of time. Um, So our programs, you know, top out at about a year of support, but actually there needs to be holistic care for a director from, you know, the moment they consider being a director all the way through the moment they decide to retire from the field. And so how do we care for our alumni? How do we care for mid-career directors who are um, stuck? You know, they, they're they not new. They're not, you know, um, one of the benefits of being new in our culture is the, is, you know, the fetishizing of the premiere of the of the new artist of the new prize of the of the best new thing so when you reach that point where you're no longer um new to people but maybe still haven't reached that point of sustainability there's a certain i don't know stuckness that you can fall into and how do we help artists navigate that space um i also think we're finding a lot of um established direct people who got to a sustainable place um, burning themselves out, um, finding that they are um, having to avoid risk in order to protect institution. You know, if they're artistic directors, they may um, need to protect an um, um, antiquated subscriber model or something like that and, and then have to make choices that they themselves don't um, feel are the strongest. And so how do we support those artists in being able to take risk and, they, and to renew and revivify their creative energy um, because they're so masterful. So I think the drama league's really got to figure out how to care for the totality of an artist now, um, as opposed to what I think used to be the case, which is we would create an entry point into the industry and then it was up to you to make your way through it. I think now the drama league has to stay with you as you make your way through it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's our, that's our big challenge for, uh, the next few years. It's certainly how we are coming to a lot of the demands of this moment of uh, both created by that, the health concerns of the pandemic and how um, we are choosing to answer the call for um, more opportunity and equal opportunity for BIPOC artists um, is to really think about the humanity of what it means to care for artists, why it is so important you know, artists are the stewards of civilization. They're the ones who help society figure out where they're going to go next. Um, it's the science of figuring out life, you know. And so 
those people have to be supported in a more fulsome way by the society at large and then by those of us who care about those artists and and who make it our our work to do so yeah i do i mean it's amazing that you it's it's amazing that you do that and as someone who is an alum alumnus of the program i do sort of like see that i see the like effort that you're making to like continue and obviously even this the fact that you and i are sitting here having this conversation is evidence of that um but i i i am sort of as you were talking i was just i couldn't help but wonder like how is how is the pandemic going to change all of that once, you know, like, or, or will it not change what you are doing specifically? Because you're not actually like, for the most part, you're not really producing work or trying to sell tickets to anything. Like, do you think that your work will actually not be affected by it? Or do you see that like it already has been and you think will con- might continue to be affected by it? Yeah, it already has been. And then I think it's also going to be radically you know, reshaped, you know, early on in the pandemic, um, we started to get calls from directors who needed help um, because they didn't have health care and needed to know how they had a fever of 102 and didn't know where to go or people who were being kicked out of their apartments. I would I would have to negotiate with their landlords to keep them in their apartments, you know, and this hadn't been a part of my job prior to the pandemic. This was all new, you know. Um, we had people who lost all their directing work and suddenly, you know, didn't know how to find a food bank because they didn't have enough money to buy food and needed to get it to their families. So like suddenly we were doing, you know, connecting them to services where they could feed their families. But I think the larger point of your question of sort of how the work's going to change in supporting directors is that I think the job of directors is about to change dramatically. I think Mm -hmm. directors are, Um, imbued with a certain amount of agency and authority and power in the creative process. So directors get to decide who, who is in the room. They get a voice in casting processes. They get a voice in production protocols and how our rehearsal room runs and all of that. So if we think about like how to, how do we make those rooms healthy for work? A director is going to be called upon to advocate for certain kinds of practices. Um, we know the problems in casting in our country and the, and the, you know, decades of, of um, bigotry and racism that have been foisted on that process. Directors can in many ways be a force for good in that, but they need resources. They need training. They need to understand how racism works inside these processes and in these rooms. And so for us as the drama league, I think we can sort of become the center for this knowledge for best practices around the changing evolution of what it means to be a director and, and what directors are going to have to do after the pandemic. When we return to live performance, we're going to come to a radically different production landscape. We're going to come, we know we're going to lose some companies. We know we're going to lose some artists. We know there is intense financial pressure already on the field, and that's not going to go away. Um, And then we also know that we have priorities about making a better um, theater industry than the one we had before. Um, We we want to do better. Um, So we want to support that energy um, and that positivity by giving directors the skills and the knowledge and the language and the tools to do that work. So I think we're headed in that direction. Um, 
we'd done a little of it pre-pandemic. We had um, kind of become one of the places where you could really um, delve deep into intimacy direction. Um, and, you know, this was a set of skills that had developed in the wake of Harvey Weinstein's scandal. Um and directors needed it very rapidly and will continue to do that work. But I think there's, that's just one example of many, many, many things directors are going to need. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, you, you, you do speak so eloquently about all this and I, and I am um, so grateful and in awe of like all of the work that you do, but I, the, just as like the, the last question, because we probably should end in a few minutes, I'm just sort of wondering, like, what is driving you to do to do all of this work? Like, you're doing amazing work, and you're obviously like fighting very hard and going from meeting to meeting. And I'm just curious to know, like, what is what is what's like lighting that fire for you? Hmm. <laughs> it is the fire lit. Um, <laughs> what is the alternative? Um. You know, the world needs its artists, it needs its theater, it needs its directors more than it's ever needed them in my lifetime. This is the defining moment of our age. Are we going to do better? How do we support um, a profound shift in our world and in the way that world is reflected through theater? My... So when, you know, I don't know that I have an option if I feel called to duty, I feel called to um, do everything I can, you know, um, it's really exhausting. It's really dispiriting um, when you, you know, when you look around at this moment and you realize that there's so much injustice and so much inequity in our field and that is coupled with a world that is in so much pain, it can't really even focus on us right now. And I, I, I worry about the future so enough to where I feel I have to pull 16 hour days, six days a week to do, to get it done. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like I have a fire. I, I wish I could give you that sort of metaphor of I'm charged <laughs> up. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. It's really, really hard. It's really, really tiring. Um, but it's also necessary and and really important. Um, I should also say that I spend every day talking to people like you. To I talk to directors every single day. Um, and I take a lot of energy from them and from their drive to make a better world. Um, the, the energy it takes to create and innovate um, is in abundant supply in our field. There's, there's a rich trove of imagination and creation that's built into our work. And even though we can't put that on our stages right now, that work is still happening in every single one of these meetings as everyone plots their return to live performance, as everybody struggles to figure out how to make the field better and the world better, that energy is on display. Um, so I think I get some energy from that. Um, and that, and that propels me forward too. Um, I also take every zoom reading as a triumph. You know, if somebody got if somebody got something up in this time, if someone is able to create in this moment that I put that in the win column, um, 
And it makes me really um, energized to say, look, there's so many people out there working so hard to communicate with audiences about what's happening in this moment. And it, and there's some, there's some fuel that I derive from, from that. It's, if you look hard enough at this moment, there's a lot to be inspired by. Thanks to these exceptional artists for being so honest with me. And thank you for listening. I'm so grateful that you've taken time out of your lives to go on this journey with me. At the end of all of these conversations, we may not have any clear-cut solutions to the issues that were raised, but my biggest takeaway is ultimately about transparency. It feels like it's in our power to change the landscape, but only if we're open and honest with each other about our experiences, our successes, and our failures. As we begin to see the light at the end of this pandemic tunnel, we have an opportunity to do things differently. We have an opportunity to create a healthier industry a financially equitable industry for all. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Talking Direction. Join us every week by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us and engage with us directly on all social media platforms with the handle at DramaLeak. Talking Direction is a project of the Drama League of New York, America's only not-for-profit lifelong home for stage directors and the audiences who treasure their work on stage and films on television and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help theater folk and their families who are suffering from economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, visit dramaleague.org and click Donate or become a member. We'd love to have you a part of our Drama League family. Thank you for listening. Until next time.